0: Welcome to the Diverse Minds Podcast, where we give you the tips, tools and techniques you need to be a mentally healthy and inclusive leader. Each week, you'll hear about a variety of topics linked to mental health, well-being and diversity that will enhance both your professional practice and personal well-being. Welcome to the 16th episode of the Diverse Minds Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking all about Disability History Month which in the UK runs from the 22nd of November to the 22nd of December and we're in the midst of it now. I just want to be honest before I delve into this episode. I've really struggled to record an intro for this episode because of the general election results in the UK. I know many people are very happy about the results but I am personally struggling to process the outcomes and what it means. And on Friday night, once the election results had been announced, there's a programme in the UK called The Last Leg, which is a comedy programme crossed with a kind of current affairs approach. And it is led by a number of disabled comedians. And one of the comedians, Adam Hill, was asking another comedian, Alex Brooker, around um, how things might change under our Conservative majority government. And it was light-hearted, and Alex gave an example, and he said that, Well, I think instead of fox hunting, that certain people might start hunting disabled people. And it was a joke and it was tongue in cheek, but actually it got me thinking about how much work we still have to do and how we all need to be allies in relation to disability. And on this episode, I'm going to be talking to Steph Cutler, who is the CEO and founder of Making Lemonade and someone I've known for a long time who's really helped me understand and become a better ally in relation to disability. And she talks about being disabled as a club that we all join at some point, or we will join at some point in our lives. And actually, it's not an exclusive club, so we all need to care about disability. So I just wanted to say that before the episode um, really starts in earnest, that I'm really struggling, but we've just had the 3rd of December which was the International Day of People with Disabilities and IDPD is celebrated every year and I'm going to talk about the work of the wonderful Purple Space who do the Purple Light Up in the UK. So firstly what is disability? So disability under the UK's Equality Act 2010 is having a physical or mental impairment that has quote-unquote substantial and quote-unquote long-term negative effect on your ability to do normal day-to-day activities. So substantial means it's more than minor, so it takes much longer than it usually would for you to complete a daily task, for example, getting dressed. And long-term means that it lasts 12 months or more. So anything that comes under this definition, including mental ill health, will be counted under this definition. And interestingly, one in seven people globally are thought to have a disability. In the UK, there are around 7 million people of working age who are disabled. And current UK government figures suggest that disabled people make up 12.9% of the public sector workforce and 11% of the private sector workforce. And the purple pound, otherwise known as the spending power of disabled people in the UK, is valued at £249 billion to the UK economy. So as with all of the things I talk about, there is a legal case, a moral case and a business case to supporting, understanding and being an ally for disability in the workplace and beyond. So I just want to talk a little bit about what you can do in the workplace to support disability and disabled staff. I think one of the most important things is to never assume what disabled staff want or need. You need to ask what's helpful and how someone prefers to work, but you really don't need to do a deep dive or delve into their medical and personal histories. And it's also important to remember that a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't work. Just because someone you might have worked with has a hearing impairment doesn't mean the next person who has a hearing impairment will have exactly the same experience. You need robust procedures in place, but with training and support for line managers to implement these effectively and to also understand that you'll need to look at things on a case-by-case basis. The second thing is it's important to challenge normative policy. And what do I mean by that? Well, policies more often than not are written from a particular perspective. On the whole, that tends to be a non-disabled perspective. So you need to talk to your disabled staff network colleagues, staff and disabled customers for input to get an improved policy and procedure that is fit for purpose and adaptable. And this was talked about more in the episode on domestic and sexual violence in the workplace, where Katie Russell highlighted the importance of using your local rape crisis centre to ensure that your domestic or sexual violence policy is fit for purpose. And this is exactly the same with any policies. They need to have a lens. They need to have a sense of, is it fit for purpose for staff with different sorts of disabilities? Now, if someone tells you they need some workplace adjustments or accommodations, as I know in the US, you've got to ensure a timely process. Once a disabled staff member tells you about the adjustment or adjustments required these will need to be implemented within two weeks and the number of times I've seen staff struggle, disabled staff struggle to get their adjustments in place and it's just not right because disabled staff like with any other staff they want to get the job done and there's nothing more demoralizing than not having the equipment and or recommendations that you need put in place in a timely fashion. And the other really important thing to note is that adjustments are not usually expensive or time-consuming, especially when you consider the increased productivity and outputs from the staff member. So demonstrate that you want to learn as an organisation. I think arranging training and development opportunities for your teams around disability and understanding is crucial. And I've seen organisations really struggle and they've made disability support much more complicated than it needs to be. So an interactive, engaging and open training session and subsequent support will mean there's disability literacy in place. It also removes the fears and misconceptions. And I always have a joke that people say, act natural, it's a disability, and then proceed to dive under their desk or workplace hiding grounds to ensure they don't have to confront quote unquote disability. And this might sound glib, but I've seen it happen time and time again. The fifth thing is the workplaces you might want to be part of the Disability Confident campaign. Disability Confident replaced two ticks and it's a scheme that is designed to help employers recruit, retain and develop disabled people and people with health conditions for their skills and talents, and there are three different levels, committed, employer and leader, and I've provided a link in the show notes for you to find out more. And finally, sign up to the wonderful Purple Space. I'm looking forward to having Kate Nash, CEO and founder of Purple Space, on the podcast later this, well, I say later this year, I mean 2020. But Purple Space help organizations across all industries and sectors to create disability employee networks and or resource groups. They then help the networks to build engagement strategies to stimulate better conversations about all aspects of disability in business with their internal allies, champions, and executive sponsors. So there are my six top tips to implement really for Disability History Month and beyond. And of course, I couldn't talk about this all on my own. So I'm delighted to welcome Steph Cutler to the show. And as I mentioned, Steph Cutler is the founder and CEO of Making Lemonade, a business she set up from her own personal experience acquiring sight loss. And Steph has won national acclaim for her approach and commitment to disability equality as a leadership coach, trainer, speaker, and role model to other disabled people. Most recently, she was in the Disability Power 100 list in 2018 and was on the judging panel this year in 2019. She was also a member of the All Party Parliamentary Group on Disability, a trustee for Action for Blind People, part of the RNIB group, and she's currently a Shaw sure Trust trustee. And in 2016, she also completed the Claw Social Leadership Fellowship. So I'm so delighted to welcome Steph Cutler to the show today. Hi, Leila. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners more about Making Lemonade, what you do, how you came to run your own business.
1: Yeah, sure. So I set Making Lemonade up uh, over 12 years ago. Um, I set it up having acquired unexpected sight loss. And when that happened, I started to um, experience the barriers that disabled people face, which, you know, in all honesty, I hadn't been particularly aware of as a non-disabled person, um, you know, working hard, playing hard in the fashion industry. You know, disability didn't really come into conversations I was having or into my life in any way, shape or form really. Um, so, you know, I I was pretty unaware of of the things that people do experience. And, and when I found myself experiencing them, it was, um, well, it was eye opening in one way because I didn't know the extent And sometimes the small things, actually, which can really impact you in quite a big way. And many of them seemed to me to exist often. by other people like I'd been just not really being so aware that they were making it more difficult for people to participate. And that really struck me. It particularly struck me when I learned about the social model of disability. That was a really liberating moment for me because I was going about really keen to go about my life and get back into work. Um, and I didn't understand really why everything had to change so much. So I was still Steph in my head, you know, in my mind, I was still Steph. Um, I still wanted to do stuff. I still wanted to take part. I still wanted to work. You know, I was in my late 20s. So I had a lot of working years ahead of me. Um, and, I, and I assumed that it was me being disabled there that was making it more difficult and yeah that kind of was true but ultimately it wasn't always me and i and i felt that so when i learned about the social model of disability i was like this makes so much sense to me because actually it isn't me every time it's not me it's not my Ultimately, there are external factors at play here that's making it um more difficult for me so um one of the things that i was finding more difficult was to get back into work um uh, i became employable again by adapting and learning how to use assistive technology. Um, I had lots of transferable skills to bring to a new organisation, a new role, um, and the interviews just weren't forthcoming like they had been. Uh, I'm not saying that was down to my disability every time because I it, I wasn't discriminated against every time, but I did find it disproportionately more difficult. Um, and that is when I started to get respondent about my my situation. Uh, so I decided, in my uh, my my step way, because I'm not terribly patient. The other thing, I didn't give it really long enough to get a job. But I I felt like I ought to have been conceding uh, further and faster than I was. I decided, just to stick with two fingers up to all those employers out there who didn't seem so readily keen to um, invite me for interview or offer me a job. And I employed myself. So I set up my disability equality consultancy, based on. This idea that social model says we reduce and remove barriers and we become less disabled and I would support organisations to reduce and remove barriers um, so as to widen their, um, their customer base and to um, create more diversity in their workforces.
0: Thank you, Steph. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot, haven't we, around, you know, remember when you came to do some work for us, the reason you came in is because an individual who had um, sight loss from a really horrific racist attack, actually, um, and her department just did not want to acknowledge or accept it. or um, well, actually, no, they, they thought they knew it all, didn't they? Um, and I remember mm-hmm. how powerful it was. And I remember someone from the HR team saying, well, I've seen and done it all. I've been in HR for years. I'm not coming to the training session um, and saying to her, okay that's fine that's your choice but actually I don't know it all and that's why I'm going and the kind of look on her face and this kind of assumption that um, you know well it's not really our problem or um, you know I've, I've done my learning bit now so that I'm going to stop there and I think that's the thing isn't it that people need to educate themselves about the barriers that other, faith, other people face and actually one person's experience of sight loss or visual impairment is not going to be the same as someone else's so to then assume that all people with sight loss need the same thing is also very narrow-minded I think.
1: Well, absolutely. The you know the, the difference is in, in the experiences people have and the, the tech they require and the the issues they face. You know, very enormously. And you know, here yeah, I've lived experience in sight loss. I'm currently working for a, a sight loss a charity as well as running my organisation. And you know, I don't know everything. I wouldn't profess to know everything. You know, so. There's there's constant learning around this,
0: and and this and this year's theme for UK Disability History Month is leadership, resistance, and culture. So, what do those sort of let's take each of those strands because they're quite big in and of themselves. So, in terms of leadership. Um, and the disabled community, or being a disabled individual, leading your own business. What are your thoughts around that, and how you know people could link it to anything that they're doing around Disability History Month this year, next year? Because of course, it's got to extend beyond the month. Um, and your thoughts are really around leadership and disability. We also talk, talked about the Short sure Trust to Top Hundred Disabled People um, Power List.
1: Yeah, so I've, I've worked on this um, this theme of leadership for I don't know about ten years. Um, I've really championed the idea of lived experience leaders. Um, There there are just not enough people in positions of leadership with with relevant lived experience. Um, And I I just I think you know leadership teams are really missing a trick by not having that that valuable expertise, that lived expertise as well as lived experience on their on their boards. at leadership level and I think we've been doing lots of work around this um, it's not really changing anything like quickly enough um, so there's that we need to keep pushing on that really because um, there's lots of people um, with the skills and the expertise that, that, for whatever reason and I think it is complex people aren't where they ought to be um, career progression is we know um, more difficult for people, um, for disabled people. But I think leadership, I look much more broadly at leadership than than that very conventional type of um, uh, leader. In the South I think there's lots of uh, disabled leaders leading change in grassroots um, organisations, in communities. Um, You know, these days, you can lead change as a disabled person, you know, from your armchair um, from your home um, using you know, social media. And there's a lot more of that is going on. So I think the opportunities to lead are wider. And I think disabled people are taking up those opportunities. So like last year I was um, on the Disability Power List, the Disability 100 Power List, um, as one of the most um, influential people in the UK. And this year I was on the Judging pa- Panel. And actually, it was a real privilege to be on the panel. And it was hugely, wow, I was just so enthused reading these applications. And we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications. And it was the toughest job. <laughs> like, it was so tough because there were so many people out there doing so much good stuff. Um, and it was like really tough, but so heartwarming to read um, of all these people, mm. um, some known to me, but many weren't. And actually when the list was published um, this year, when it, when it came out, the feedback that I heard the most that was put to me was just how many people were on that list that were not um, sort of quote unquote, the usual suspects. Um, so people who, who have been yeah. have been around and about doing their stuff for a very long time, um, it was really refreshing, I was told, and I feel that actually, yes, in many cases, some of them were there because absolutely they deserve to be there, um, but they're, 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 it felt like there was this grand swell of a new generation of disabled people who were out there doing their thing their way and making a difference. So, you know, in my head, they're all leaders. They're all leaders doing their thing, championing change in their ways, and I think um That was very encouraging.
0: It's really interesting you mentioned that you were a judge on the top 100 power list and I'm really pleased to hear that because one of the people I know is on the power list and she also won an award at the Asian Business Chamber of Commerce, the President's Award, is Shani Danda. And she's done some really interesting work on the diversity card um, and also she works doing reasonable adjustments uh, for Virgin. And I think you're right, I think often in any industry you see the same as it was the usual suspects. And I think one of the things that the disabled champions and leaders talk to me about is that it can be very monocultural
1: yeah i think it has i think that that is what um that was encouraging you know and there was lots of great people who didn't make the list you know um we could only choose 100 and um like i say it was just it was really tough um but but there are so many people out there and i think it does give the opportunity to learn about what what else is going on beyond the, the the people who have have been tirelessly doing their thing for a very long time, it, and it was those people that did say to me, Great stuff! <laughs> right? That this is starting to diversify in lots of different ways, actually. It's a funny choice of word, I don't come across it very often in this, this kind of thing. I suppose it could mean like resistance to um, stereotyping, resistance to um, like exclusion and stuff. It, it, it's a word that doesn't sit that way. With me. Um. Um. Yeah. Okay. Um. So for me, resistance is a really broad term, which could mean a lot of things in a lot of different settings, perhaps. Um, but I think disabled people have, have had to resist, you know, historically over the years, like just time and time and time again, um, around, you know, perceptions of, of who they are and abilities um you know stereotyping um and you know excluding people so the resistance to that has has been going on for you know just a very very long time and i think as a as somebody who has had an impairment for for i forget relatively recently so 15 years so the majority of the my lifetime, I was non-disabled, um, and so having lived with my parent for, for a relatively short space of time, I feel like I owe a debt of gratitude actually to people who, who came before me, who who really resisted, um, who spoke up, who you know, if you read the document that accompanies Disability History Month, you know, it, it's. It really does document what people before us, um, and in some cases, people, you know, those people still are, but many of them, you know, have, have pushed and pushed and pushed so that people like me acquire an impairment in this, you know, in these times. And yeah, it, it does still exist, but, you know, in a m- much less way. You know, I'm not excluded in the way that I would have been, you know. Decades and decades and decades ago, and that's because of the resistance that native disabled people have, you know, fought and campaigned so hard for. So I think resistance for me, I think there's a there's a sense of gratitude that I feel, um, and I think the baton is is being taken up um, by people today, like I've already said, and and that that that, that needs to continue. Really, you know, you think in workplaces, people. Um, you know, you need, need to push so hard and so often to get, you know, adjustments they need to be efficient and effective, um, which they which I are entitled to, you know, that's just not acceptable anymore, you know, and and unfortunately it takes um, individuals very often to be the, um, to be creating that resistance and, and pushing that resistance because actually, we, we live with it, so we, we have to because we shouldn't have to to the extent we still have to. So I think, you know, I suppose what I'm saying is we have come a long way and I really acknowledge that, um, but I do still think there is there's a way to go um, because we just shouldn't need, you know, I think self-advocacy is really, really important and I think, you know, we can disable ourselves Disable ourselves sometimes, um, but it's certainly very true that there are still external factors that um, make it more difficult um, for disabled people to progress. And therefore, you know, they have to resist and be really resilient. Um, and I think disabled people are resilient on the whole. I think you know we are, and we we've, we've become resilient because of resistance that we that we need to you know push for. Yeah, I really, I do really feel that, um, because, yeah, I, I have um, more challenges. I guess more challenges as a disabled person than a non-disabled than I was when I was non-disabled. And so that means surely that we're not there yet. But actually, when I think about how I live and work, the experiences that I have, you know, they aren't my personal experience. I'm not talking on behalf of this, is just me talking about me here. You know, they don't compare to what I learn and read and, and hear about somebody like me, times gone by would have faced. You know, actually, opportunities do exist for me that just wouldn't have done in the past. And, you know, that hasn't just happened by itself, you know that's happened because of the campaigning that's gone on, you know, really significant campaigning, tireless campaigning by activists who have pushed and pushed and enabled me to sit here today and talk about opportunities that I do, you know, that I do have. And yeah, it's individuals and groups, you know, it's, it's the movement that, that made that happen. Yeah. Um, like I always keep an eye out, like, the themes of disability is um and I've occasionally done bits and pieces around it but actually, um, in my experience, it, it, it doesn't have the traction I'd like it to have, you know, and I think, I think if disabled people understood the history better, um, it would put in context some of what they're experiencing or, you know, um, it, it, it's helpful to understand what's gone on before. So, I think that is important. It's important for disabled people. But like you say, Leila, it's really important for non-disabled, you know, we need allies. We don't, we can't, nothing about us without us, 100%. But actually, that in and of itself, you know, isn't going to create the change as quickly as we want. We need We need non-disabled allies as well. Um, but, you know, it does, it needs to come from us. Our lived experience should, should should need this and take this where we need it to go. But actually, you know, we need to be collaborative about this and non understand people are really key. And like you say, you know, it, disability is a club which most people will join. <laughs> oh, um, well, you know, my membership came a bit earlier than I imagined, but um, it, it, it is a club that, you know, most people would experience disability um um living impairment a long-term health condition at some point in their lives and so therefore you know that makes this just so important because the more inclusive workplaces are um you know society is it's knock-on effect It's, it's it's just it's there for just about everybody at some point in their life to benefit from you know yeah and there's lots of examples when you know making things more inclusive actually has a wider impact on the the people you first have in mind for those changes you know and i think that's why for me leadership's important because if if we were around the table more um and we were considered more and then, then surely by definition the world would be more inclusive because we wouldn't we wouldn't be an afterthought and and um, inclusion would be at the heart, like truly at the heart. It would be business as usual. You know, what if inclusion was business as usual? That's what we need to that's where we need to get to. If it wasn't if it wasn't something we thought about um for disabled people even, if we just thought about how how can the majority of people access whatever it is we're doing, whether it's an event, whether it's a you know recruiting for a job, whether it's a, you know, creating, you know, an environment, you know, a space, a building if we thought about the widest possible, you know, access, provision to this, you know, whatever it is, it would, it would, we would just live in a more inclusive society, surely, and so therefore, if we're around the table, that's more likely to, to be the, the trained thought. Yeah, well, I I think. It's people you come up, it's people you meet in those places. You know, I think it comes down to, you know, social model identifies attitudinal barriers. Um, And I think that's where this really comes into its own because, you know, I I am a believer that, you know, most of the attitudinal um, barriers to safe people face don't come from a bad place. You know, some do, I acknowledge that, but I don't think most do. I think that we we experience attitudinal barriers um, sometimes from a good place but they're not good but it comes from a good place um so you know it, it can be awkwardness you know it can be you know not wanting to patronize not wanting to offend you know they are good intentions but in in not knowing what to do around that the outcomes are that people don't feel as welcome they don't feel as included they, they sense that kind of uncertainty about you know even just to have a conversation with you sometimes you know so um, to me, that's culture. Culture is around. Um, it's a business as usual piece. So, actually, do we have to be separate and different? Yeah. Not really. What, what, what if we we didn't look first at the difference and um, just conducted ourselves in a way which which was truly inclusive? You know, that that's culture. And I think you know, it's how we present these things as well. Um, feeds into culture so the messages around this you know um, if we always focus on something which is not necessarily the most important thing and we're diverting from what what is important um, and so I think it's how we talk about this it, it's very much what we do but it's what we do and say and I think culture is is so important and it needs building and working on because we're not there yet. I was just going to say, I think, I think there's something about acknowledging that um, unconscious biases exist. So, yes, yeah, some of it is, as you've just joked. You know, but I think an awful lot of it is it's unconscious biases that we hold. And I think, you know, if if, if an organisation can share that we all hold unconscious biases, you know, um, that's that's what the theory says, um, and that recognizing that is a pretty good start um, in the sense that you know, for whatever reason, and those reasons will be different from one individual to another. But we we do hold um, thoughts pertaining to different people for different reasons, um, and that while some of those some of those thoughts aren't okay, um, to acknowledge that we all have biases um it's perhaps a starting point in the sense that um it's not saying certain people or you know some people just don't hold any thoughts that that are unhelpful in these respects you know we all do a bit some of us do a lot and and, and take it from there um, And and i think the yeah, the this, this stuff around culture. I think there is something about not wanting to. You know, if you want to be perfect and get it right every time, that's a that's a really high bar to set. Like, set it great because I love big ambitions. <laughs> but equally, I think don't. You know, you won't get it right all the time because we can't get it right for everybody all the time. So there's something about acknowledging and not turning this into something that feels unattainable or unachievable you know it won't always go right and not everybody will will, will will respond well to things that we do but if we if we are following uh, if we're following best practice you know if we're doing things for the right reasons and in and involving the right people we stand a chance
0: yeah that's that's really lovely and i think you're right because that's how to create genuine allies as well so we're not just talking about allyship in a nice lanyard which you know is important don't get me wrong but for there to be genuine understanding empathy and change yeah. And what would be your top three tips so if someone's listening and they think actually I do want to get more involved in the disability movement or actually you know it's about DHM 365 what would be your top tips for someone who wants to find out more and understand barriers that disabled people may face and again I'm using disabled people but we know that disabilities are very broad um, everyone's experience will be different but just as a starter what would be your top three tips I
1: think- I'm going to say involving, but I actually mean more than involving, but involving people with lived experience in what you do. Um, and I slightly hesitate when I say involved because I'm talking here about really genuine, authentic involvement that goes beyond involvement. So it can start there, um, but really hearing and listening and acting upon and then building people's expertise into what you do that would be a great start um, providing opportunities for people with lived experience to uh participate um and progress within you know your organization your your um, agendas i think that's a distinction i make between involvement um and, and sort of genuine engagement and opportunities because actually I say involvement because people, some disabled people, make that's the level that they want to be involved is is to be um, consulted and perhaps not wanting to do much more than that, and that's absolutely fine. But there will be some disabled people for whom involvement in that respect is, is just not not enough, and so therefore for those people who have the desire um, and the drive and the expertise to you know that that talent to to. To enable you to get this right more readily, you know, we have to provide the opportunities um, and the pathways for those people to progress. So I think the lived experience piece has to be number one, probably number one two actually. <laughs> um so yeah, um, lived experience, the involvement of lived experience is totally key. Um I think you know, if you want to embark on on doing more around this, just be open, you know. Be open, and, and I think don't worry too much about getting it wrong. You know, so we're just people; we get it wrong too sometimes. Um, and, and yes, there is like best practice language and so on. But, but we need to be we need to be open to just having some really honest conversations. And so, if you get it a little bit wrong, you know, let's all just move on. As long as the the drive um, and the the kind of intent is right, you know, let's let's move on from with that if you like. Um, so I think just having some really honest conversations about what's achievable, what, what what's the right direction, and what's the first places to start or the, the next places to go. Um being honest around that is is key. Because I think sometimes we don't we aren't honest actually. Both parties aren't as honest as they might be. Um and we have to work together. So I think there is something about about that collaborative way in which we we take each other with us as best we can. Um, and that might be that we don't always get exactly what we want but but we influence and that's a we have a long term sort of strategy on that and that, that we Yeah, we just work we just work together well, you know. Uh, and be open to that and be honest around that. I think that's really, really key. And I think allowing people to, you know, I would say allow people to participate in in lots of different ways. So that might be for access requirements, but that also might be because, you know, people might not, you know, might have preferences as well as requirements in terms of what they want to um, input and how they want to do that. So I think, you know, we tend to sort of create ways and means which are quite quite linear, if you like, or, you know, quite, you know it's step by step and this is how we do it well actually you know let's be open to how people can contribute to this because um otherwise we miss out on expertise that that could really help um push the agenda
0: forward. Thanks Steph that's really insightful and really helpful and I think by involving people because they're people but who've had a different experience of barriers um yeah that that's going to really enable people to understand what they can do better from a really authentic place.
1: Yeah and I think there's, there's still that thing why not Well. Not everybody even associates with the D word, you know. Mm. Um and and not everybody's you know even happy to share. So that there, there has to be something, you know, we have to do more to enable people to feel able to share um information that they want to about what they live with. Um because whilst people are um exerting so much energy, which you know some far too many people do, um to hide their impairments, and you know that's just counterproductive for them and for people wanting to make opportunities available. So if it, we still we still have an issue, you know, resistance. We talked a bit about you know um, disabled people often resist sharing information, um, often for you know justifiable reasons, but. Um, we need to get to a place where you know you can call yourself what you want, and you can. But you're but you're welcome to contribute and share. And I think you know we we, we just need to be better at providing opportunities for people to share and making that feel authentic. Um, I think disabled people need to need to be better sometimes at sharing what they need to share so that they get what they need in order yeah. to participate yeah. um, because you know that's such a block such a block i come across this so so often
0: yeah and unfortunately yeah and, but i also think organizations need to create environments where disabled people feel safe to talk about and to share that information so
1: yeah and yeah. that's culture isn't it
0: yeah exactly <laughs> it's
1: right back to culture because actually you know i, I completely understand um why some people you know choose not to and it's absolutely their choice um but actually the culture was better and and they trusted that culture you know them sharing is usually the best means for people to understand how they can make things more inclusive and for people to to turn up show up and, and be their best selves you know
0: yeah, absolutely, because that's what people want. People want to progress in their careers or they want to be in their career or their job in peace. They don't want to be hounded out or be asked to justify themselves.
1: Yeah, and that happens quite too often and when it does, it puts people further off from sharing. So, you know, I, I do get all of that. Um, but that, that does take us right back to existence and culture, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. I think that will be helpful so for organisations to think about how they do that, how could they do it better and to go beyond making inclusion a tick box. Um, and finally, just before we finish, it'd be really great to hear from you. Have you been to um, any events this Disability History Month that you've really enjoyed that have been kind of beacon events for you that you found really innovative?
1: You know what? This is the first thing that I've been, I've really been asked to
0: do <laughs> around this.
1: Um, and I haven't really been not much has been on my radar around it, and i and i I do think that's a shame, you know because so I, I've done some um like reading and, and access the resources that are available, and actually I think I would recommend that but I put them like, you know are pretty good um, but no, not really um unfortunately, not
0: okay, and any you know events that you'd really like to see, so it could be in dHm or you know have you ever sort of thought right this is the kind of ultimate event for me that I would love to attend in terms of you know disability and hearing about disabilities?
1: Yeah I think, um, I think it is a shame that that not much is done, not as much as could be anyway around disability, because actually I don't, i come across many disabled people who you know who don't, who're not even aware of the social model of disability or other you know other models of disability so ways of thinking about it um, you know, I don't, I've come across people who really have limited knowledge of, of any historic kind of aspects to the disability movement um, and that, that does seem a great shame because there's a lot of learning there. Um, it can inform the thinking um, and I think, you know, to, I've certainly found understanding these things have really enriched my understanding of what actually being the same person. Might mean, um, and I, I and I do think the reason why people don't look back is because so often there's there's a self battle around acknowledging their own impairment and you know being being prepared to, to say I'm a disabled person. Um, and I think whilst I and I understand that, I think that history piece can help you get to a place where you understand that it isn't disabled you aren't you know, you are disabled for reasons and that you are a disabled person which is different from living with a disability you know and and, and that that learning comes from from the history so i'd like to see you know more or charities for example you know providing events on the historic aspect to the people who access their services because i think it could be really empowering
0: yeah, that's fascinating. So it kind of links sometimes with co-production um, with involvement, but again, it's around, you can't know where you're going to if you don't know where you've come from.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely something in that.
0: So thank you so much, Steph, for uh, joining us for Disability History Month. It's been brilliant to talk with you. And I didn't know whether, to, before we finish, you wanted to say anything about making lemonade and what your plans are for 2020.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, briefly. So yeah, I've um, I've been, taking some time out from it to uh, work for Thomas Covington Trust um, in this year. Um, I'm going back to um, making Lemonade um, fully in 2020 and um, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think there's there's lots to be done, we've already said, Um, consultancy, uh, coaching, I'm particularly interested in the professional development for disabled people. Um, I've got um, lots lined up of, around delivering um, training for disabled people in work around much of what we've talked about today, actually. So a lot of that training does um, focus a bit on um, his, you know, his history, rights, that kind of thing, but equally being really effective in the workplace, bringing your whole self to work, um, how you're able to do that, how you self-advocate you know, all of that sort of stuff. Um, And and these courses that I'll be running have just described so frequently as life-changing, which is just incredible because just to spend some time really exploring what it means to be a disabled person at work um, and and people leaving with the tools and techniques and confidence to to go back to their workplaces and and advocate for what they need to be efficient. That's the sort of stuff that really makes me tick, which I'm looking forward to doing um, next year along with my sort of trustee, um roles and um, consultancy stuff which I, I do have lined up so yeah I'm interested to see um see what comes in the uh, into the inbox for 2020 but keen to get back to all of that that leadership type work um and yeah you know just making sure that people's talents are utilized as best as possible and that we have more lived experience represented in in key areas and um so that that's that's the bit that really makes me tick with making lemonade.
0: brilliant and if people want to find out more about you and your work how could they find you so I don't know if you i'll put it in the show notes but if you want to share anything around your twitter handle or your website
1: yeah so um making hyphen lemonade.co.uk and i go as at step underscore
0: so brilliant thank you so much Steph and I wish you a wonderful holiday season and of course rest of disability history month and I look forward to seeing everyone in the next episode of the diverse minds podcast where I'm going to be reflecting on the year that I've had the lessons I've learned and looking forward to 2020 so take care and thanks again Steph bye bye thanks for listening to the diverse minds podcast Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access your podcasts from. You can also connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Tune in to next week's episode of the podcast, where I'll bring you more insights on mental health and inclusion. Bye for now.